0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at
1: RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, well let's do a little bit of a review. It's been a couple weeks, two or three weeks since we were together. The last time... We talked about how much of contemporary preaching is powerless. That's not meant to be an unjustified crack. I think this is a book by Azurdia, and I think as he looks at the landscape of evangelicalism, he recognizes that there is a sense of powerlessness in modern preaching. Not because men are not gifted, but simply because many men fail to rely upon the real power. So technique will not solve the problem, but the Spirit's empowerment. Probably the the most useless course I took in seminary was a course on preaching. Not because it's unimportant, but because the way it was taught was wrong. Just to give you an idea, one time we came into class and we sat down. He put us in a circle and he passed out... Bulletins that he had collected over the years from various churches. And on the bulletins, you remember those old-fashioned bulletins that had pictures on the front? He told us, each one of us had a different bulletin. He said, okay, take five minutes, come up with a sermon based upon the picture on your bulletin. I thought, well, that's kind of odd, you know? And so we asked him, why are we doing this? This is kind of strange. And he said, well, you never know if you're on vacation and you show up in a church and the pastor is sick and they ask you to preach and you're walking up to the pulpit and you're looking at the bulletin, you can go on the picture. I said, how often does that happen? You know. But that gives you an idea of how the preaching course was taught, so it was worthless. Technique will not solve the problem, but the Spirit's empowerment... <clears throat> We said the doctrine of depravity teaches that we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We cannot understand anything properly without the Spirit's illumination. The disciples themselves, eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus, observing His miracles, listening to His teaching, required the Spirit's power. If they needed it, so do we. And Jesus promised that His disciples would do greater works than he did, which was an astounding statement. But we discovered that this means that the ministry of the church post-resurrection would be in greater fullness, greater evidence whole counsel of God is complete, greater efficacy, because many from all nations would be brought in as we see the extent. So in fullness, evidence, efficacy to all nations, we understand that this is a greater work than even Jesus did, and he himself was the one who told us. Now some churches sadly rely upon secular psychology or church growth techniques or political activism in their preaching. And while maybe well-intentioned, it is, in effect, powerless because those things are not promised to be blessed. There is no power behind them. Anybody can gather a crowd. This is why the size of a church really doesn't matter. I mean, it's encouraging when you have a critical mass, you know, you feel kind of weird if you walk into a church with 13 people because all eyes are on you as a visitor. We remember those days. Um, We'd have a visitor maybe once every three months. I don't know. So there is an idea of a critical mass. It makes people feel comfortable. But other than that, it has nothing to do with the success of a ministry. What a successful ministry is, is relying upon God's Word and His Spirit to make that Word powerful. So Scripture reveals that we, as Christians and the church, should obey God and rely on His Spirit as we use the means of grace. And that is one of the expressions of faith that is required of a Christian. You're not taken up with the techniques and the novelties of the world. You rely upon those simple things that God has given. Uh, Look for the ancient paths, the good way, right? And so we do that, and there's a lot, not many bells and whistles. So the Holy Spirit, we discovered last time, is a divine person who possesses all the attributes of deity, including divine power. He is God. He's infinite. He is the great revealer. He's the great communicator and the illuminator of inspired divine truth, which is in the Bible. This is God-breathed. This is the Word of God. It's a book that's unlike any other book in the world. He communicates truth objectively and externally in the sacred scriptures that he inspired. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote down exactly what God wanted to be revealed. And so the only way that we were persuaded that this is the very Word of God is the Holy Spirit speaking by and with the truth in our hearts that this is the very Word of God. It is the God, Word of God, whether you believe it or not. But the way that we come to embrace it as such is by the Spirit's illuminating power. So he communicates truth subjectively, internally, by his work of immediate illumination. Pre-conversion, that's a dull book. Post-conversion, it has all the interest in the world. It's an amazing thing. Our depravity hinders our spiritual understanding. This doctrine of sin necessitates his regenerating and illuminating work. So the problem is not with Scripture, it has nothing to do with Scripture, it has everything to do with our corruption, which is why the Spirit has to work. These are the things we covered last time. Any questions or comments on the review of what we discussed before? <clears throat> okay, so if we're talking about evangelism, And if the church is the primary agent of evangelism, and if the primary means of the agency of the church is the Word of God, that's why we're looking at preaching. This is the primary means, not the only means, but it's the primary means of evangelism. He has promised to bless this. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. Today, Luke sums it up. You know, the Word of God was let loose, unleashed, and look what happened. An entire empire was taken under. So, again, many churches have what we call a Christian-centered ministry. Well-intentioned. We're not questioning their intentions. They love the Lord. They're trying their best. But as a Christian-centered ministry, it is experience-oriented. Excuse me. And so what happens here is they tend to put the Christian rather than Christ at the center of the ministry. It's about what you like, what you need, what makes you feel good. And we understand that those things can be important in their place. We want you to be encouraged, so forth. But what is it that truly encourages, as we'll see, is a Christ-centered ministry. So here the emphasis is placed on individual needs individual desires rather than the truth. We need the truth. It's the truth that sets you free, right? So the church has the responsibility not of meeting individual needs first, but of proclaiming the truth. A lot of stuff that comes from the pulpit, if it's done scripturally, will preclude much counseling in the office, you know, uh, And counseling in the office is great. It's fine. It's important and needed. I'm not discounting that. But what I'm saying is that many times in many churches, if the pulpit is being faithful to Scripture, that handles a lot of questions that might be raised in the office. Holy Spirit's primary focus and his primary responsibility, we're told, by Jesus himself is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He will glorify me as... Uh, we see in John 16, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And he declares it through the agency of the church. So scripture teaches not to be Christian-centered, but to be Christ-centered, gospel-truth-oriented. We can't get away from it. And mark, mark this, Satan will try... His hardest to divert the church from a gospel centered ministry. He wants us to be involved in otherwise good things, right? Uh, moralism and so forth. But if we get away from a Christ centered ministry, then he's basically won the day. Packer says the Spirit is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. And of course, the analogy we've used before is at a football game, they're on Friday nights, and what's going on, everybody's interested in what's going on in the field. And the floodlights are what illuminates the game. You don't look at the floodlights and say, wow, that's a great floodlight, you know. But the floodlights enable us to watch the game. And the Spirit enables us to see the Savior. That's His primary job. He's concerned primarily with communicating the truth about Jesus to glorify Him. And so we've had a lot of emphasis upon the Holy Spirit in the last few decades. Much of it has been misguided because it's all about experience and very little about the truth of Jesus. My background, I know that by experience. He does this in part by convicting the world and making people aware of their need. That's why you have to have law and gospel, the whole counsel of God. He will apply the law, showing the world its need for Christ. And if the law is proclaimed, then the unbeliever will benefit because his conscience is awakened. That's important. It's necessary for conversion. An awakened conscience. You don't seek a remedy unless you know you have a disease. So, the Spirit convicts the world, makes people aware of their need for a Savior, and then He also reveals the full completion and the saving sufficiency of Christ's work of redemption. There you go. The serpent raised up in the wilderness. All you have to do is look at him, and you're healed. So, that's the Spirit's work. In this preaching enterprise, He is the one that makes it effective. And he progressively reveals more clearly the beauties and the excellencies of Christ's person and work. A saint, a Christian, a believer learns to love spiritual things, not first because they're beneficial. I'm saved. But first, because they're excellent. This is from God. Isn't that true? And even in conversion, sometimes when we're first brought into the kingdom, some of us are brought into the kingdom because we're frightened of hell. Judgment. You have a sense of judgment, and that's okay. But that begins to recede as you begin to see the beauty of Christ. And that's why we love God first and foremost, because He is excellent, He is good, He's gracious. Secondly, because who else has the words of eternal life? You know. And so the foundation of true love for God is seeing Him as infinitely excellent. <clears throat> love for God is founded on His love for God is that is founded on His profitability starts at the wrong end. If we're always starting at boy, He's profitable to me, he gives me what I want from hell, you're starting at the wrong end. If we see him as he truly is, his glory, then we can understand the profitability second. Like Job, though he slay me, yet I'll hope in him. Any questions on this Christocentric spirit of preaching in specifically in the ministry in general? Very important that we stay crystal Christocentric. Oh, John?
0: Out of hell, but you feel is your life is a mess. This will help fix your life, but clearly, it is the excellency of Christ that is there. But that's going to be harder. It might be harder
1: for people to grasp. Where often this is something that they grow into as they mature. Absolutely. Then, how does that affect both uh, evangelism or
0: evangelistic preaching, and then preaching to Christians? I don't know if there's a difference or if there's a difference.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You'll notice in the third from the bottom, a saint learns to love spiritual things, not first because they're beneficial. So it does take time. And like I said, my entrance into the kingdom was largely because of judgment, of conviction, of not wanting to be damned. That's the whole point. But then you begin to learn as you begin to see God's mercy in Christ. What a wonderful thing this is. What kind of love is this that he, the infinite God, would take on flesh and die for me, a worm? You know, that kind of thing. So it is learned. Some people, not judgment, but the beauty of Christ, come into the kingdom. And I think if we preach the law and the gospel properly, I think the beauty of Christ is held up for all to see. Why not be able to see it right away? But if we consistently hold up Jesus, we'll see it. We'll see it. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to do this consistently for anybody. I mean, Spurgeon might be an, example, an exception, but, you know, the prince of preachers, he'd wait for a text Saturday night, get a text from the Holy Spirit, preach it Sunday morning, and it would just be awesome. You don't find those men very often. That's really hard to do. Anybody else before we move on? Okay. Okay, so the Spirit does accomplish His work through the written Word of God. And I might sound like a broken record, but if I'm going to be a broken record, this is a good thing to break on. Um, It's the written Word of God. It's always the Word and the Spirit. That is the Reformed doctrine, Word and Spirit, Spirit and Word. He's sovereign, he's powerful, he gives us the word, and that's what we focus on the word and the spirit. It is the instrument that he chooses to employ for converting sinners and comforting believers. So, in seminary, in a preaching class, we should not focus upon silly things like bulletin covers. We should focus on the word. This is what he's going to use. I can't preach like Spurgeon. Okay, professor, I can't be a Spurgeon, but tell me how to construct a sermon so that I can proclaim Christ. I think that's what we need. Even Spurgeon wrote a book on preaching. It's awesome. He had a a school for pastors. He was training preachers. It's a great book. Um, And in that book, you're not going to find him telling us to look at bulletin covers. We approach the Bible with the settled aim of finding Christ in it. Any text, any passage, it's all about Him. You search the scriptures because you think, Pharisees, that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament anticipates Christ, its promises, its prophecies, its sacrifices. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All of it. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Who was it? Somebody recently told me, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying that a pastor actually said, well, there's not much gospel in the Old Testament, so we're going to focus on the new. And my jaw dropped. Have you read your Bible? I mean, it's all about Jesus. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. Every chapter of every book. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of it. So you can see the whole Bible, the Old Testament, is full of Christ. And it's our job to find Him. Um, new Testament reflects upon and explains the person and finished work of Christ. What a wonderful thing, New Testament clarity. This is one of the reasons why we sing, uh, both old and new, because it's clear who He is, what He did, what He continues to do. And so preachers and hearers both of whom have responsibility here, can expect the blessing of God when they are in step with the Spirit's purpose. As a preacher and a hearer, we should be able to go into that sanctuary, and if we focus upon the Scriptures, hold up the name of Christ, as inadequate as we are, we should expect a blessing of God. Not because we can manipulate him, but because he himself has promised. And we bank on the promises of God. Any questions on Christ-centered scriptures? Okay. Good. Okay, my hero, John Flavel, or if you're British, Flavel. That sounds kind of hoity-toity, I think. Um, The excellency of a sermon lies in the plainest discoveries and liveliest applications of Jesus Christ. Very simple. So if you're going to evaluate a sermon, now not every sermon can be focused upon a text with Jesus mentioned explicitly, but every sermon should have Christ, The Corinthian correspondence contains various kinds of paradox. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's a strange thing. What are we talking about, Christians? Let those who have wives live as though they have none. What what does that mean? He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's a paradox. Poor and rich, same thing. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a paradox. How can power... Be displayed, demonstrated, and made perfect in weakness. But God does it. So we have these paradoxes in the Corinthian correspondence, particularly, and the greatest paradox, of course, is that mentioned by Paul, the gospel itself. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. We want a Messiah who's going to overthrow the Romans. to Gentiles. He's a criminal. He's a crucified man. This is foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So you have crucifixion, weakness, shame, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's a paradox that the world doesn't understand. The culture's worldview is diametrically opposed to this. Power, prevails. Wisdom impresses. Power, the Jew, wisdom, the Greek, that's what we should pursue. Even the disciples themselves had issues with this. Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom? These Romans, they're invading our land, they're occupying our, our Palestinian soil. What are you going to do? And Jesus had to train them. And he's, remember the messianic secret? He healed these people, and he kept telling them, don't tell anybody. Do you ever wonder why he said that? Why not tell people? Well, because they wouldn't understand the true nature of his mission until after the resurrection. That he had to be a crucified Savior in order to save true Israel. So don't tell anybody now, because what they'll want to do is make me king. And at one point, they almost did. And he had to walk away. But the world's understanding is that power prevails, wisdom impresses, but the apostle says it's the weak and foolish things of this world that are used to display God's glory. I just saw, uh, I have your thing. Melissa lent me The Essential Church. It's a movie made by John MacArthur's group out in California. And in that, they were discussing the Scottish Covenanters, and two women, two Margarets, one an older woman and one 18 years old, were martyred for the faith. They were tied to stakes uh, when the tide was out, so that when the tide came in slowly, the older woman was set out front so that as the younger woman saw her drown, she might recant as the tide came in. And of course, these two women were martyred for the faith with the courage that Christ gave them. And these weak and foolish things God used even now to encourage the church. Isn't that amazing? Satan thought through his cruel instruments that he was stamping out. Nope. Their testimony, their witness is still going on today. It's an amazing thing that God uses the weak and foolish things to display his power and his glory. God's power and wisdom are displayed in a foolish message, the cross. A man hanging on a tree, nailed, bleeding, dying. God's power and wisdom are displayed in foolish people, the two Margarets, you and I showing up every Sunday for worship. What are you doing wasting your time? You spend a seventh part of your life doing what? Is that profitable? Well, not materially, but spiritually, it's eternally profitable. God's power and wisdom are displayed in foolish ministers. You honestly believe getting up there and just proclaiming the gospel is going to do anything of any value? Let's have couches put up there and let's have a conversation. I think that would be better. That's the emergent church. Any questions on the evangelical priority? Amen. It's awesome. <laughs> At least she's listening. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, the, uh, the tyranny of the gospel. <clears throat> That's why I love kids. Isn't it great? I mean, it's just awesome. So, again, preaching. And why, why are we focusing on preaching? Why don't we do, do this with preachers? Well, because we're all involved in this process. You're listening to preaching all the time. You're evaluating, or you should be, preaching all the time. You're examining the Scriptures as you hear these things preached. So we all need to be understood, uh, 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 schooled in what preaching is to be. It has to be linked to Jesus and his accomplishments. That is to say, in order for our preaching to be Christian... It must be evangelical. There's a lot of preaching out there that's not Christian. I think, and I don't normally use names, but I think I heard Andy Stanley recently say something like, get rid of the Old Testament, Um, the Bible does not require us to meet for worship, all these things. And he doesn't focus upon Jesus and his accomplishments. So at least there's one that you can avoid. That's not Christian preaching. If it's not tied to Jesus and his accomplishments, it's not Christian preaching. You can expect no blessing from it. Now, God can use it. I'm not saying he can't. He can use a donkey. But I wouldn't call that Christian preaching, and I would not expect to receive a blessing from it. We can't divorce the gospel from the rest of the biblical record. The whole counsel of God... It comes to us through the grid, though, of the gospel of Christ. As we said earlier, everything points to Christ. You should be able to go to the genealogy of Genesis 5 and find Christ. He lived 100 years. He begat so-and-so. He died. He died. He died. died. Well, we can find Christ there. The cadence of death is frightening. How can you face the cadence of death in a sin-cursed world with any kind of confidence while we go to Christ. He rose from the dead. There are at least two tragic assumptions made by modern preachers that undermine preaching. I think this might have been C.H. Dodd, but I can't remember the man who actually made some of these assumptions. First, the assumption, preaching the gospel of Christ is not suitable for a Christian context. In other words, These are all Christian people. They're already converted. Why on earth would you preach the gospel to them? Preach doctrine, focus upon other things, moralism, duties for husbands and wives, and so forth. Why would you preach the gospel to them? And of course, Luther was asked that question. Why do you preach justification every week? And you know what he said? Well, because you forget it throughout the week. (laughs) And he's right. That's a tragic assumption, that you don't preach the gospel in a Christian context. The second one, preaching doctrine is inappropriate for a setting of unbelievers. In other words, preaching the infinity of God, preaching the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, preaching the necessity of regeneration so on and so forth. Preaching doctrine is inappropriate. Just, just preach the same evangelistic sermon every week to the unbelievers and see what God does. Well, no. Doctrine is important. And I think the truth, in all of its splendor, all of it pointing to Christ, can be helpful, beneficial, and useful, even in an unbelieving context. Christian preaching and teaching has to be linked to and grounded in what we call redemptive history. Our proclamation of the word must be tied to what we call the Historia Salutis. Salutis, salvation, Historia, history, salvation, history. The history of salvation, what God has done. And, you know, there's a a place for personal testimony. We do this in our membership interviews. I think that's important. I think Psalm 66, come and hear what the Lord has done for my soul. There's a place for that. But in the preaching of the Word, publicly, in the gathered assembly, we should be focused upon the history of salvation, what God has accomplished. And then you take that, and the Spirit applies it to you individually. I've had people... I remember one guy was furious at me. You know him. This is 20, 25 years ago. He was mad at me. He came up to me one Sunday and said, why are you exposing my sin? You're preaching to me. It, and that wasn't a compliment. He thought I was singling him out and preaching to him because I was mad at him or something. I said, so-and-so, I... I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me and everybody else. And he, he was very mad. I think you remember that. I'm pointing to Ray. He, yeah. So, um, what happens is if you preach, hopefully, if we as a church, the ministry focuses upon what God has done, Christ is held up, the Spirit convicts, it will come to roost in your own heart. Jared? on one extreme you have just like reading
0: scripture. You can stand up there and just read scripture, right? Don't add anything to it. No number. no enunciation, no right. right. That should, in one sense, that is complete, that is God's direct communication to us, right? God doesn't need God. The other extreme <coughs> is Joel Osteen, right? Like one them, right? How do right? How do you find that? You know, you're, you're, you're teasing out what's already there in scripture, How do you where does scripture stop a personal flair or technique? Right, I mean, there's a reason why there are colleges where pastors not just of scripture but actually how to to preach. Right, how do you where do you think that find that raises that?
1: Yeah, so the question is, how do we determine how to preach, what to preach? The approach to preaching, Well, because I think, as our forefathers taught us, only those who are sufficiently gifted should preach. It's a gift. It's not something you learn. It's like what uh, what did the runner for Scotland, what was his name, the famous Eric little. you don't you can't put in what God left out, right? So, I mean, there is a, there's a training involved, but what happens in the training is that you learn to refine and to hone the gift that God gives. And part of that gift is recognizing, okay, here's a text, how am I going to take this text and be faithful to it, holding up Jesus and trying to edify God's people? And even that takes time for a preacher to learn, you know, I feel bad for the people that had to sit the first few years. It was, it was rough. They, they were gracious. And even now, I guess I could say, it's tough on you sometimes, but it is a gift. We have to recognize that God gives gifts to his people and to his ministers in particular. So I don't know how else to say it. I do know that if you focus in preaching classes on technique or these little gimmicks, that doesn't help refine the gift. You know, Um, The gift will begin to show itself. We have some aspiring preachers in our congregation even now. And as they begin to see, okay, I'm I'm beginning to get the manifest approbation of God's people. For some reason, they're edified by things that I'm able to say from Scripture. That's a confirmation of the gift. There are some men, and we've had some in our presbytery who enter the office, and they they destroy churches. Not maliciously. They're not malicious in the least. I think they love the Lord. They're just misguided. And they don't have a gift. And so I know one man who has had three churches crumble under his ministry. And you say, okay, three strikes, you're out, right? I mean, that's kind of an indication that maybe you should try something else. Um, Two men in our presbytery have gone that way. Both men, three churches. The one is now in education. The other has taken another church. It's sad. And again, they're not malicious. They're not evil in that sense. I just think they're misguided. Anybody else before we move on? Okay. So the preacher, whoever he is, is not free to say just anything he wants, but is limited to and confined by God's Word, the tyranny of the gospel. It's a good word in that sense. It's a great and beneficial thing for all involved to come under the tyranny of the gospel. Um, And this is another thing, you know, uh, when I first started... I remember my professor in one of my New Testament classes saying that you have to exposit the text. That's your most important thing. So I was so rigid. In okay, the text says this. I can't can't deviate whatsoever. This is what the text says. This is what I think it means. And we are going to focus. And my lovely wife, to her credit, she said, you know, you're so rigid and this, this, was, this was really helpful criticism. This is really good stuff. She said, look, you're so rigid. Why can't, can't you just move about a little bit? And I think that kind of wise counsel over the years has helped me to learn, okay, this is where you can go with this. And it is being faithful to the text. But you're not so rigid that you can't edify the people of God. You know, So the tyranny of the gospel is a good thing. I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, this was my settled determination, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If anybody could have gone off and discussed all kinds of subjects, the Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant and highly trained men of his age. This is what he did. I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ. Anybody? Uh, questions, comments before we go on? John? Um, so you mentioned,
0: say, uh, testimonies. People, people share their testimony. Or people people share their experiences. Um, it also seems to be, like, to my mind, there's a gradation between the Sunday morning sermon, and then you have Sunday school, and then you have community groups. Each of them seems kind of filled with a, a different role. Um, yeah. a community group would be a great time to share share testimony. Yes.
1: Share things like that. Um, but I don't I know some
0: community groups do and some community groups don't. Is there some um, way to know like, oh these are these are some things that community groups should be doing? Or these maybe some some, some Sunday schools might be appropriate to share testimony. I'm trying to trying to understand. Because there's the preaching of the work, but there's other things like fellowshipping meetings, other tones, yeah. breaking bread. There's a, a combination of things that are to be done at appropriate different times trying to understand the
1: balance of that. Yeah, I think the question is about testimonies. Where is the right prop, uh, venue for that? Um, we're commanded in public worship to do certain things. We cannot leave them out. That's what's called the regulative principle of worship. It's a principle that regulates our worship. You have to have preaching. You have to have praise and prayer. The regulative principle doesn't apply to Sunday school, which is the teaching arm of the church, or the community groups. So there's a lot of freedom. I mean, it's still Christ-centered, biblically-based, right? But there's a lot of freedom here. So, yeah, I mean, somebody could... Stand up in Sunday school and say, come and see what the Lord has done for my soul, Psalm 66. And he can give a testimony. Hopefully the testimony is done in the right way. The testimony is focusing upon what Christ has done for my soul, not what I did to ruin my soul. And that's what many testimonies are, you know. So, um, but that's a, that's a point of wisdom, I think, and prudence, Don. Yeah. There is a place for it. There is a place for it, but you'll remember what Paul did was not only to talk about his conversion, but his point was his commission as an apostle. So his commission as an apostle and his conversion were one and the same. And he was trying to declare his authority as Christ's ambassador. Yeah, there is a place for it. You're absolutely right. Um, I personally don't think it's public worship there's no place in Scripture that I can see which says in public worship you should have personal testimonies. Now, if a pastor says something of a personal nature in his sermon, okay, if it's applicable, but I try to steer away from personal anecdotes or talking about my family or you know those kind of things, not because I think it's necessarily wrong, I'm just not sure it's all that helpful. I, mean, I could say the same things about anybody else in the congregation, you know. Why would you focus upon me? we focus upon Christ. Laura? I was going to say that I mean, being relational is
0: one thing, but you're enticing them to respond to you rather right. than
1: to Right. Yeah, I mean, a healthy church is one where if, let's say the senior pastor is incapacitated, there wouldn't be a hiccup. Doesn't matter who it is, that person's faithful in the pulpit preaching the word, okay. If I'm dead and gone, if this church continues on healthy, that's success. That's good. Some churches are so personality driven that if the pastor goes, the church just kind of crumbles, you know. Okay, final one. Our primary objective, then, in preaching would be the salvation of sinners. I should have said they're the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. That's why we have Christ at the center. He is the focal point. He is the heart and soul of biblical revelation. Our commission, then, as preachers, is to herald and declare the whole counsel of God summed up in Jesus Christ. That's what we do. The cross of Christ, where the atonement for sin was made, is the epicenter of that council. All of history focuses on that one event, the cross. And it should come as no surprise then that Christ and his accomplishments form the nucleus of preaching. It's commanded by Jesus himself. It's modeled by the prophets. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, if you're a witness, (laughs) you're testifying to something outside of yourself, right? You're a witness to something, Christ. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But somebody asks, well, isn't there a place for preaching the ethical commands such as those for husband and wife and children? I remember, I'll never forget, this one man took me to breakfast and his whole point in taking me to breakfast was, look, you talk about Jesus too much. I want you to tell me about how to love my wife. Oh, okay, not sure that's a good idea. I mean, if you become a better Christian, you'll probably love your wife better. But he was very upset with me because I focused upon Jesus too much. And I'm sure I did it inadequately, you know, the whole idea of growing. But Christian preaching never does this, ethical commands, in a way that is suitable for a Jewish, an Islamic, or a Mormon audience, or any other non-Christian faith. We never preach the ethical commands of Jesus in a way that is suitable for these places. A message that is appropriate for a synagogue or a mosque, which is mere moralism, is not a Christian message. It's based upon the wrong base foundation, right? Uh, Gersner used to say he was at a, um, a seminar for leaders, and they were talking about putting out a statement, and they were talking about the Ten Commandments and ethics, and half of the group there, which is an evangelical group, said, "Look." Let's go to the Jews and ask them about ethics, and we'll go to the Christians and ask them about Christ. <laughs> He's like, why would you do this? Why would you go to the Jewish synagogue to ask them about ethics? We have ethics in Christ. And it was this wrong uh, division between, okay, they have the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, and we have Jesus and the New, so that's how we're going to divide things up. Evangelical leaders a message that is appropriate for a synagogue is not a christian message. it's based in christ. the christian preacher grounds the ethical imperatives upon the redemptive indicatives. that's a fancy way of saying the facts of jesus ground our moral commands, our moral obligations. you're in christ and you obey the moral law because you're grateful, you know. any questions on that? go
0: would make Satan happier than uh, prevalent moral goodness
1: and the empty bars, empty brothels and churches are full where the Word is not preached. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, You're going to probably think I'm crazy by saying this, but I'd rather have them in a bar than in a false church. If you're in a church where the Gospel is not proclaimed, you're in the most dangerous spot in the world because you think that you're safe and it's a precarious false assumption so you're exactly right yeah Vienna. Um, so making
0: a distinction between like preaching and what is required and then like the church and we're talking about like community and testimonies or you have like the, the speaking to you know husband wife you know child right um, homes like what are you distinguish between things that are required so you're talking about preaching the word so you're leaving that stuff out of there but then like the requirement of like is there ever a requirement should the church be doing sharing testimonies or like some of us think at being parents so it's like oh wow just know the gospel but we really don't know always how to apply those you know principles um are there you have the Titus to woman that's a command right the, Older women are teaching younger women. So, how are we making sure that things outside of Sunday preaching, what are those things that are supposed to be happening? Oh, maybe they're happening, but if
1: they're not, they're not required. You know what I mean? What, how do you? Make- well, there's a lot of freedom as a parent. Um, the Bible is your guide, your authority. You're teaching your children how to understand the gospel, the ethical commands as christians right husband and wife for example how, how do husband and wives function well paul lays it out in ephesians 5 and this is this is an expression of the mystical relationship between christ and his church you know you're you're displaying christ to people in your marriage that's very different from the synagogue's understanding of well husband is the head of the home he loves his wife you know sixth or seventh commandment you don't commit adultery You love your wife, you love your husband, and so forth. It's moralism. But as parents, I mean, there's a lot of freedom involved. As parents, outside of the pulpit, outside of Sunday morning, there's a lot of freedom. As long as it's biblically based, Christ-centered, you're faithful to the Scriptures, you're loving your children, you're loving your neighbor. I'm not sure that answers your question, but it's kind of full orb there. Very restricted in there. Very free out here. Does that make sense?
0: You know what i mean like we have the gospel message and then you know those commands and then is there a responsibility of the titus to them to transfer that biblical life? like or is that something that like everyone's free so we kind of just encourage by how we do it and you watch me you know it's a model
1: well in your place in calling if you can teach younger women absolutely you're called to do that, Does that need to Yes, that should be happening. Older women should be teaching the younger women. Younger women should be seeking out the older women to ask their advice. I'm amazed at the younger generation. No cracks intended. They want to talk to their peers. They don't want to talk to older women, older men, which I think is sad because there's a wealth of information and experience in our older saints that can be passed down. That's the way it should be. But it doesn't happen. Laura? That's right. Yeah, that's right. God of justice, of righteousness, of judgment, of wrath. And when we only focus on the The whole counsel of God. Yeah. Well, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Word of God and the promise of the Holy Spirit. We confess our need for Christ and His Spirit and pray that according to your promise, you'll bless us in him. Prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.